want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report Podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today joining us is David Ryan Barcega Castro-Harris, who's the founder at Amplify RJ. Let's jump in and get to know David Ryan Barcega Castro-Harris. How are you? Great. Love the all five names for the ancestors. Thank you for getting those all in there, pronouncing them correctly. I think that's a good place to start. Absolutely. I was going to say, normally I ask a little bit about your background, culture, and identity. And I wanted to talk about your name specifically and have you walk us through that. Because as you said, it's a great way to start off. Yeah, absolutely. So again, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris is my full name. David is my father's name. And so, you know, you keep it in the family. Ryan might seem like a name that people give their children, but I'm half Filipino. And so Filipinos do this thing where they take letters from different people's names and smash them all together. So Ryan is the R from my maternal grandmother and Y-A-N is like letters from Yolando, which is my maternal grandfather's name. Barcega, similar in Filipino culture, we often use our mother's maiden names as our middle name. And then Castro Harris is the name that both my wife and I have now. Castro is her family name. And Harris is the name that was given to my family by people who enslaved us or any of us can really remember. Fascinating. What does the R stand for in Ryan? Oh, Ruth, which is uh, my mother. Maternal grandmother's maiden name. Very cool. Very cool. Tell me about your full name and your family. How does your family sort of react to how you use your full name? It has to be sort of a curious kind of thing uh, within the family. It's funny. I think when I was a lot younger, I was ashamed to have like even Barcega as Mm -hmm. like a middle name, right? Because so many kids that I grew up with, they only had like three middle names. And right now, like, leaning into all five names is something that I think there's there's pride in and like really you're just doing too much with all five. But like <laughs> there's a lot of pride with bringing in all of my heritage and my family's heritage into that space. I know especially even for my wife's family, it's not traditional for men to take the last names of their partners, their female partners. And so for me, it was a really obvious thing to do for two reasons. One, C comes before H in the alphabet. So I'm getting an alphabetical (laughs) upgrade. (laughs) Whether we like it or not, that does have its advantages in the world, especially when you're going down indexes of things. Uh, It's also why Amplifier J is... Amplifier J starts with an A. It's just sometimes gets listed above (laughs) things. But they also appreciate having that Castro name live on, right? Um, So far, there are no grandchildren of her father who have that name. And so we hope to change that pretty soon. It's interesting. And it's a nod to all of the ancestors and the family, as as you mentioned, right? All built into a name. And you see that a little bit more in sort of Spanish cultures, right? Where you have maiden name or your wife and mothers. Yeah, right. So it's a little bit different when you step outside of that. So that's absolutely fascinating. Where did you grow up? And like, where were you born and raised? Yeah, so my parents both were military. And so my dad was born in Germany, but his family moved around a little bit. He settled in Maryland. My mom, her father joined the U.S. Navy from the Philippines. And they made all their way around from 
all around the country in Guam, Philippines. But they both ended up in college in Riverside, California, which is in Southern California. And that's where they met. That's where I was born. We've lived within 20 miles of there for most of my life growing up. And I'm still here in Southern California after a brief detour to Chicago for grad school. But so Cal born and raised, shout out to the 909. That must have been some change in the weather for you, Southern California to Chicago. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a drastic change, but you know, everybody adapts. Right, right. I want to ask you about Amplify RJ. Can you tell us about Amplify RJ and its mission? Yeah. So I think about it in two ways. One, it kind of goes back to my name, where we think about how Filipino people, people from El Salvador, Latin America, people who were exported as cargo from West Africa, before any of us can remember, we are all people who have been harmed by imperialism, colonialism, and racialized capitalism. And so some of what I'm doing is about getting justice for those ancestors and building a better world for future generations through teaching people about restorative justice. And I'll define that in a second. But really where I got started into this work was when I was working in an employment program, helping folks find work. And this is in Southern California when I was just out of college. And for me, I just kept running into this problem where people who had the hardest time finding work with folks who had records in the criminal legal system and being a 21, 22 year old, not really knowing the history about the war on drugs, mass incarceration, the school to prison pipeline, overcriminalization of people with mental health issues or overcriminalization of people who are houseless. I started looking for answers. And at one point, it started to get to stopping the question of who are the felon-friendly employers, which is an important question, but really starting to think about the root causes and how to change those things. What are the alternatives to this punitive way that we do things? And along the way, I found the word restorative justice. Now, a lot of times when people hear the word restorative justice, they think about alternatives to punishment. Instead of asking questions like, what happened? Who did it? And what punishment do they deserve? We think about what happened, who was impacted, and how can we make things as right as possible. And it's not just about that repair of harm. It's about leaning into these values and understandings of interconnection. And so to tie it back to my ancestors, right, we think about words like Ubuntu, Kapwa, and Lakesh, right? Ubuntu is I am because we are. Kapwa is the interconnection between all being. And Lakesh is I am another you. And Alakin, you are another me. Thinking about those organizing principles of indigenous people. So of course, when there is harm in your community, there are people who are a reflection of you, who are a part of you. You're going to want to repair that. Punishment just harms yourself. And it's so much easier to do that, repair that harm when there are relationships rooted in equity and trust in the first place. So restorative justice is then about both proactively building and maintaining those relationships, as well as repairing it when there's harm. So Amplify RJ is a result of me wanting to share this work with as many people as we can amplify that too. And David, where did your passion come from around this work, around restorative justice? I think about working in the employment program and thinking about a couple people who they would tell stories about growing up in foster care and then emancipated from foster care and then having to work in the black market economy, right? Selling drugs, using drugs, and now trying to get their lives back on track. And this one person in particular thinking about like, he would be like in this place where it's like, either I lie on my application and get hired and then fired two weeks later when the background check comes back, 
or I am honest straight up and have my application thrown in the trash. And I think like ban the box initiatives are important, but that's not really addressing the root causes of like why he was harmed in the first place. Similarly, thinking about someone who had a history of like domestic abuse, domestic violence, I understand like the legal and the liability reasons. Employers don't want to deal with somebody like that. But what else are you expecting somebody to do? How else are we expecting people to become contributing members of society if we're not giving people opportunities and the support needed in order to make things as right as possible? When we think about restorative justice, we think about people being impacted, right? Of course, when you cause harm, the person who is harmed is impacted, but you're impacted too, right? You often or you probably caused that harm because you were trying to meet a need and you were going about meeting that need in an unhealthy way. So what are the things that we can do as a community to support that need getting met and support you in your healing and moving forward? I think like that's where it started. But really, if you zoom out and look at all of the harm, all of the trauma that has happened, we can't solve these problems by canceling people, punishing people, causing further alienation, right? There has to be this acknowledgement that we're all apart of each other. We're reflections of each other. We're interconnected. What happens to some of us happens to all of us. And so how are we giving people pathways to come back into right relationship and build those relationships if that hasn't happened in the first place? Gotcha. Okay. I appreciate that. And I'm sure there are plenty of stories that stick out to you with the work that you do. Is there one that you're sort of like super proud of that you can maybe give us as an example or tell us a little story about it? Yeah. So a lot of times people think about restorative justice in the context of the criminal legal system because, you know, breaking the mass incarceration or schools, breaking the school to prison pipeline. And that's where it's most often practiced. And I think like that is so needed. I don't want to limit restorative justice just to those places, right? However we are in relationship with people. So when I think about maybe the workplace, thinking about repairing harm between colleagues. And I'll use myself as an example, right? When I was in the beginning of starting Amplify RJ, it was just me reaching out to a couple friends, like me sharing about this work on Instagram, right? And then it turning into offering workshops and then like it scaling from there. And the agreements that I was making with friends, informal as they were about supporting, had to change because so much of what we were doing was adjusting day to day. And so when there was harm identified by the way that I was sharing expectations or asking too much of them, pushing beyond their boundaries, them calling me in to say like, hey, this is not cool. This is not what I signed up for. How can we get back on track? Like Those conversations were really important, right? wanting to be in good relationship beyond just like, hey, how do we provide this information to people? It's making sure that like our relationship is good and working. And if they aren't working, how do we fix them? Or how do we move forward together? Not necessarily working together, but each getting what we need out of these kinds of relationships, these partnerships, because like we both care about this work deeply, but want to make sure that like we're getting our needs met in ways that help each of us feel validated, respected, understood, etc. David, I want to ask you about some of the influencers in your life, you know, for this type of work. And I think what's fascinating, you've talked about how throughout Amplify RJ, you've worked with nonprofits and legal systems and education and education settings, but there's so much more work to do and it's everywhere. What inspired you or how did you learn that perspective? What were influencers for you personally? And being able to start to address that. Yeah, I think I think I'm falsely attributing this to Mr. Rogers, 
Because I think his quote is like, when there are times of crisis, look for the helpers and go where they are. Similarly, someone shared with me, when you want to work on an issue, go to where the people are who are already doing work on the issue. And there's no need to reinvent the wheel or recreate things. And so I don't remember who ingrained that in me, but I can think back to when I was 19 years old. I was in the middle of college and the earthquake happened in Haiti. And this was 10 years ago, mm, 11 yeah. years mm. ago now. Not the earthquake that just happened, but the one in right. 2010. And figuring out a way to get down there and help. And I think like there was a lot of saviorism in there. And through that, I learned from folks there that like, no, you really need to be with people, be in community and not just put your ideals of what should happen from you know your American perspective, even though you know I'm also a person of color right now. Mm. And I think that ethic has just carried with me wherever I've gone. And so when I go into places to try to learn about the stuff, whether it's just, hey, I'm going to show up at Sheriff Tom Dart, who is the sheriff of Cook County in Illinois, in Chicago, where I was going to grad school, showing up at one of the places where he was speaking and saying like, hey, I want to do this work with people who are incarcerated. Like, can you direct me? And him hooking me up with an internship or showing up at this community organization with people who are already doing the work and saying like, hey, I'm a grad student trying to learn more about this work or showing up with teachers who have been doing this work and begging, like, I'm a broke college student. Can I train <laughs> under you for this? And so shout out to Cheryl and Aura, Aura, who has since passed, who gave me those opportunities to learn and train. Shout out to Kay Pranis, who is someone who has been doing this work for, for a long time. She's a white lady who learned a lot from Indigenous people in Canada and with their blessing, helped bring circle practices of restorative justice into our Western context. Shout out to Tomas Ramirez, who's someone who has been doing this work from Indigenous perspectives for a long time, still does that in Chicago. Shout out to Miriam Kaba, who's been doing transformative justice work, abolition work. For me, it's just like, find the people who are doing the things and then get as close to them as possible. Like, don't like badger them, but like be helpful. Those things turn into opportunities to work, opportunities to facilitate, opportunities to grow and teach and then continue to carry on their legacy of sharing this work with folks who need it. Thank you, David. You've talked about your background and your family and being a person of color. Have you personally experienced moments of discrimination? And if so, what were some ways that you handled that? Yeah, the one that stands out most that I tell most often is about when I was in college. And for folks who can't see me, my hair is long, loose curls. Right now it's pulled back. But when I was in college, I used to bike to school because I didn't have poor college student, didn't have a car. And when you show up after biking, having worn a helmet, your hair is like mine, kind of looks like a hot mess. And normally I would go to the restroom to get cleaned up a little bit. But on this particular day, I stopped in my professor's office to ask a question. And we were talking, no problem. My program director walks by and said, took a look at me with my hair all over and like, you need to get a haircut now. And so I did. There were lots of feelings around that, but it was easier for me to quote unquote, be professional and comply, I know that had a high influence on like getting recommendations for a job. Like for them, it's like, oh, he takes his job so seriously. He takes this work so seriously, like, which is bullshit. But, you know, it was just easier to conform and comply, you know, taking the stance that, you know, hair grows back. Yeah, I was going to ask you for those that wouldn't understand what you just said, that's really important, I think, is the feelings around that. How did that feel? Can you share with everyone like how that makes a person feel? Yeah, 
we can shout out like the folks who have worked on things like the Crown Act, who have made it illegal for public workplaces on many state levels to discriminate on people's hair and appearance. To be honest, I know that the feelings that you're looking for are like being othered, shame, and some of those things. For me, it was like dismissive, angry confusion. It was like, really? Is this what we're spending our time on? Mm. You know what? Fine. Mm. Like my identity isn't rooted in my hair, right? Those were my authentic feelings. It'll grow back. Let me just finish this out, get this job, get this money, grow my hair back out. Nobody can tell me anything after this. Really just wanting to like get it over with and be done, not wanting to put up that fight because it didn't seem worth it to me mm. in the moment. And like looking back now, like I don't know if I would have done anything differently. Yeah. The dean of that school was a black man. And like if I had escalated it up that way, like who knows how <laughs> sympathetic he would have been, but like who knows what repercussions that would have had on me as far as continuing to be in this person's program and like for recommendations and and all those other things. And, you know, people talk, small community, like not wanting to be seen as like a person who causes trouble. So it's just like, you know what? Get the clippers and do what we got to do. Amazing. You mentioned some folks that impacted you or touched you and a little bit earlier. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're working with others to sort of create the next group of folks who are going to be able to help people? How are you working with other people? to pass that torch on, if you will. Yeah, so Amplify RJ, again, started as me really wanting to dig into how to amplify, literally amplify this work so people have a real idea about what restorative justice is when they hear the words. So at the 2020 Republican National Convention, there was this person who got up and blamed the Parkland school shooting on like lax restorative justice practices. And that's not what restorative justice is about at all. Similarly, when Amy Cooper was accused and charged for calling the police on Christian Cooper in Central Park, people said that she got a restorative justice process. She didn't. And so like really giving people like a concrete idea of what this is. And so one of the large ways that I've done this work is through social media, sharing, educating, amplifying this work. And there's so many people within my specifically Instagram community, and I play a little bit on LinkedIn, who have been immensely helpful in sharing this work. People very early on, like Liz Kleinrock, who is at Teach and Transform, or Sky Tooley and Ace Schwartz, who are growing with Mixty and teaching outside the binary, if I'm remembering their handles correctly. And my cousin, Zarina Jimenez, a little upbeat class who have helped bring me into a community of folks who are doing work in social justice education spaces and really pushing that to the forefront. Britt Hawthorne is another, and I could go on and on. Those are a lot of people who bring their similar values, but also like their areas of expertise, whether that is talking about like the gender binary and why we need to be more inclusive about that and integrating those with restorative justice practices, right? Or my cousin talking about like how this exists in the music classroom. I've collaborated with folks who work in university spaces in business spaces to further push this work into spaces where people might not have known the words before, but we need it because it's all about how we're in relationships. And I think in a lot of ways, it addresses like the root causes of a lot of the problems that we're facing white supremacy culture, right? Where it's not just about marching with the Klan and using racial slurs. It's about the way that whiteness is entrenched in our society and restorative justice practices offer antidotes to the sense of urgency, this people over productivity, this defensiveness when we're bringing up conflict. There's just so many things that restorative justice offers antidotes to. 
And David, if someone is listening to this podcast right now, let's say that this is their first introduction to restorative justice, where should they go following this podcast if they want to learn more, if they want to be involved in the conversation? What should they do next? Well, AmplifyRJ.com is a great place. We're all social media platforms at AmplifyRJ. If you search in YouTube, what is restorative justice? There's a breakdown that I do. It's a 36-minute video about some of the like really nitty-gritty foundations that that's up there for free. I also come and work with organizations, workshops, trainings. So if that is something that you're interested in, there's a contact form through the website, again, amplifyrj.com and be happy to talk. As someone who has started their own business as well too, right? What advice would you give to anyone that's thinking about that has an idea, has a passion like you have and wants to launch their own business? What general advice would you give as a founder? Oh man, there's so many things. Like very technically, if you think that you're getting beyond a threshold of 50K in revenue, make sure you're incorporating as an LLC and re- register as an S-corp because you know that would have saved me a couple of Gs this last year in self-employment tax. That's really technically. Beyond that, it's hard for me to give advice because like, I only know what worked for me. I'm not a serial entrepreneur. I'm not a serial business starter. I started this in 2020 and have learned a lot since then. You know what, the piece of advice that you just gave, I mean, that's super helpful, right? That, you know, listen, like if you are launching your business, form an LLC. If not, you're going to get hit with taxes the next year. Like that's seriously good advice. For sure. For sure. Then <laughs> if, if that works, we can leave it at that. <laughs> that's good advice. All right. Fun question. I love asking every guest that we have on the podcast, which is to give us the top three apps that you use on your phone on a regular basis, but you can't name email, calendar, or text messaging because those are just too boring. So Instagram. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Right now, it's probably this stupid phone game called Toon Blast. <laughs> and maybe YouTube after that. Gotcha. I like how you said right now, because the apps, like they do change, right? We've been doing this podcast for the last year and a half from home. And prior to the pandemic, when we would ask this question, it would always be like the Delta app or the United app or something like that. <laughs> and right. those are, people aren't using those anymore right now, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> That's so true. Well, David, what are some ways that our audience can reach out and stay in touch? What's the best way to to find you? I am most active on Instagram at AmplifyRJ. I am on LinkedIn, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris. But easiest thing just might be the contact form at AmplifyRJ.com for folks if they really want to get directly in touch. Excellent. Well, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, thank you so much for hanging out with us. We learned a lot today. A lot of new ways to really get involved, be active, and really make a difference. So thank you very much for your time with us. And thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode. You can find more episodes where you find all of your audio and video. Just search Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thanks again, David. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 